0: December 7th, 1941. It's history. A date which will live in infamy. The events. Not quite to the morning mass of the humanities. The figures. The drama. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. The deep questions. It's Hardcore History. What is it that we all find, or so many of us find, fascinating about the Nazis? Not just the Nazis, but Adolf Hitler and the Nazis? Let me tell you why this question pops into my head, and I'm thinking about it so much right now. In the last history show we did, we talked about the Great Depression. And one of the underlying themes of the show was how tough times can open the door to all sorts of radical ideas that normally wouldn't have any space to get heard. Nobody would care. But tough times create calls for desperate measures, and the Nazis were an example of a desperate measure. And I started, you know, delving back into some of the Nazi stuff as part of the research for that show, And it once more sucked me in as a subject. It's a fascinating subject. And so I thought, well, I'll talk about the ideas of the early Nazis. And I did a test recording. We do a practice show a lot of the time, try to get my ideas straight. And I listened to it. And I kept thinking, you know, there's something wrong with this show. And when I broke it down... I figured out what was wrong with it is it sounds like I'm somehow an admirer of the Nazis or Adolf Hitler. And I thought, why is this coming off like, you know, I have some sort of admiration for this group of killers and thugs and evil people. And as I analyzed the program, I realized that the reason it sounded that way was because how amazed I was during the whole program by what these people were able to accomplish and achieve, how improbable their rise to power was and how amazingly quick everything took hold. If you could detach yourself from the horrificness of what happened, it's an amazing historical tale. And you can get caught up in that. You know, talk about, wow, wasn't this improbable? Boy, wasn't that amazing? Can you believe, you know, Hitler's luck here? And then listen to it as a whole and go, wow, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right because there's no context. And the context is that all this amazing, unbelievable, fascinating stuff that happened culminated in the deaths of millions and millions and millions of people. And we talk about the Jews and the Holocaust, which is deserving of its own show down the road. I still don't think, even with all the media attention over the years, that the horrificness of that has really been brought out. Going to do a show on aspects of the Second World War II at another time. This is more about, well, the Nazis and their ideas and Adolf Hitler. But originally I was trying to find some of the, you know, little twists that we look for when we give you stories as part of this program. And by the way, as usual, we encourage you, if this excites or interests you, to go get a book, go online, flesh out what we tell you a little bit more. We hit the highlights. And we often think about the Jews, but we don't think about, say, the Russians, who wouldn't have lost at least 20 million people if Hitler had never come to power, and the Nazis had never come to power. And we don't think about the gypsies, and we don't think about the gays, and we don't think about the priests, and we don't think about the handicapped folks, and everyone else that the Nazis didn't like and victimized. A great many people on this planet paid the price for all of these weird, amazing, coincidental strange things that make the Nazi story so fascinating. And I started analyzing myself a little bit, going, now, what is it I find so fascinating about this? And why are there so many swastikas on book covers at the bookstore? You know, the publishers will tell you that you can expect a 10 to 20% boost in your sales if you have a swastika on your cover. Why? What so fascinates us about this thing? And I thought, well, you know, that is the sort of the weird little twist to this whole thing is, what is it about the National Socialist Movement in Germany that continues to rivet our attention? I mean, Tom Cruise is making a movie right now, looking at the events of some of this stuff. ...but it's just the latest in a long, continuous line of films and literature... ...and continued analysis on the Hitler era in Germany... ...and the rise to power of the Nazis. What's up with that? As part of research for this show, I went online to some websites. And these websites, uh, you know, would often have discussion threads... ...underneath some of the information where people could talk. And there were Nazis on there. I mean, modern-day sympathizers who are really into the Third Reich and the ideas and the whole thing. Never mind the Holocaust and the 20 million Russians and everything. Never mind the fact that it all turned out bad. What's up with that? I mean, in some ways, you could probably forgive some of the German people that supported Hitler early on because they didn't know how it was all going to turn out some of them made a dreadful mistake or let's be honest a lot of them never liked Hitler anyway and got dragged into it and their country made a dreadful mistake I suppose we could have a lot of sympathy for those folks didn't ever like the way it was going and still had to pay the price but these people these weirdos on the discussion board who are so into this stuff um you know and who would like to see a little bit more national socialism in the world heck they know how it turns out and they're still into it what accounts for that fascination Seemingly doesn't make any sense, does it? And you know, there's something else going on, too. Because if you look at, say, Joseph Stalin, who was a contemporary of Adolf Hitler, was probably, you could consider him the arch enemy of Adolf Hitler, yet there were a lot of similarities. The total dictator of Soviet Russia, also a mass killer of people, bad guy. Sociopath, which is what they used to call Hitler. Neither, term, you know, neither guy probably fits that title, whatever that title means. But why aren't we as fascinated with Joseph Stalin as Adolf Hitler? Why don't we have, you know, the images from that era of Soviet Russia all over books in your local bookstore? And why isn't Joseph Stalin celebrated anywhere near as often in films and literature as Adolf Hitler is? Well, I think if you listen to a Joseph Stalin speech you might get your first clue. Joseph Stalin's speeches would put you to sleep. Joseph Stalin did not rely on his position because of his ability to move men's minds. Joseph Stalin was probably closer to a thug or a mafia godfather who got his position through outlasting and out-backstabbing the competition, being more ruthless than the competition, than Adolf Hitler who I think, when you listen to him speak, or even better, watch some of the newsreels, you start to maybe see a clue what differentiates him from, like, a Joseph Stalin, who was much more like the people that, you know, are the brutal dictators of countries tend to be. They're not too often flamboyant orators who try to take ideas and push for some sort of higher agenda, twisted and evil though it was, Hitler had something figured out. And it was so powerful and captivating that it still resonates. That people are still moved by it to post on these discussion boards even though they know it was a disaster in practice. Something was going on there. And again, this is what started me down that road in the practice test where you end up listening to a piece that's amazed at all the little breaks that had to go right for the Nazis to gain power. And it sounded like a tribute piece, I think, at the end. I mean, it didn't. I'm exaggerating. But you want to say after every sentence, but they were evil and bad and terrible and never lose sight of that. Isn't this amazing? But, you know, they were terrible. And I thought to myself, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of like a Darth Vader thing from Star Wars where you come across a figure that has this remarkable ability and instead of doing anything positive with it turns to the dark side and takes all those gifts and all those twists of fate that turned in their favor and all the opportunities and used them for evil instead of good. Not that Adolf Hitler was ever going to head up UNICEF or anything like that. But that's what Is sort of missed. I mean, think about this guy first of all, because you have to understand Hitler to understand the Nazis. All of these fascist movements from that era, and maybe all through time, have tended to be personality cult kind of things, especially with the founder. You know, if you get many generations uh, of leadership in some of these dictatorships, like you did say in the uh, successor Greek times they would still tend to venerate the founder of the dynasty but in the case of most of these things they were so tied up to the personality of the ruler that when the ruler fell the system took a jolt too well you could see that this whole Hitler thing was a cult of personality and he was attracting attention to himself and you say to yourself wow this guy is a powerhouse where did he come from and this is the first part of the Nazi Hitler story that sounds like you know, admirable when it shouldn't. But Hitler didn't come from anywhere. Hitler was a loser. Hitler was a failure. Hitler was homeless. Hitler was starving. And ten years from that condition, he finds himself one of the most powerful men in the world at some of these rallies with tens of thousands of people saluting him and, you know, begging to do his will. Imagine how he must have pinched himself when he thought of his humble past and how he had transformed himself from a nothing into that in such a short period of time. That's an amazing thing. Now, maybe you subscribe to the trends and forces theories of history that says that he was extraordinarily lucky and that the conditions at the time were ripe and that one way or another he found himself in the right place at the right time and just took advantage of these forces... Or you could subscribe to the great man theory of history that says that there was something in this guy that awoke, and he moved history because of his powerful personality or his fated gifts or whatever you want to say. But as we always tell you on this program, probably a combination of the two, it was the amazing times that this guy lived in that opened the door for this creature that was Adolf Hitler. And I say creature because it was almost like this nobody was transformed into something else I often used to talk with my history major friends about some mythical god of history and we used to wonder if this mythical god of history didn't just throw certain beings into the historical mix when it was necessary right when you needed the east and the west to meet up and those civilizations to join up you throw an Alexander the great into the mix and he accomplishes his goal and then he dies and exits from the world stage right Sort of the historical straw that stirs the drink. And it's fun to point to certain figures and say, Gosh, you could just see how that guy shook things up, you know, for the gods of history. Served his purpose. Well, Adolf Hitler was this nobody born in Austria. I think his father was a customs official. The kid was unremarkable. Didn't do particularly well in school wanted to be an artist but was rejected from art school, thought he might be an architect, couldn't get near architecture school. When he left his parents' house as a young man and went to Vienna, which is a very cosmopolitan city in the Austro-Hungarian Empire before the First World War, he ended up becoming a vagabond. That was the term of the day, what we would say today is homeless. And living in uh, homeless shelters or on the streets, he writes in his book Mein Kampf, which means my fight or my struggle, of going to bed hungry all the time. He would try to survive by painting watercolors that would be sold to shops who would put them in frames when you were trying to sell the frames, you know, the default photo at the frame shop. And this was a guy who ended up being saved by the First World War. Think about that for a minute. That's a little strange, isn't it? Saved by the First World War. Because the First World War put him in a position for the first time in his adult life to have a regular place to sleep, warm bed, regular hot meals, and a place to belong. He had some, you know, comrades in his unit. And he ended up joining a Bavarian unit, which was a big deal to him. Got in the German army instead of fighting for the Austrian army. Because he soured on his home country a bit. And we'll get into this in a minute. But it's a pivotal thing, just like the First World War is a pivotal thing. In the transformation of Hitler from this nobody to somebody who was almost possessed, like the god of history sent down some demon because he needed an Adolf Hitler, because the world was, well, ripe for an overhaul, and maybe you needed some instruments to help you overhaul it. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. We told you in a show a while ago about how upsetting to the world the First World War was. It's truly still the most transformative event of our lives. And today we are still living with the echoes, the ripples of that, you know, upturning of the old order. And if the ripples are still as strong as they are now, and we can still feel them like this, imagine how strong those ripples were right after the event. You know, if the world was turned upside down, imagine what it was like while it was turning. And this is where the Adolf Hitler that became this demon monster that raged through history, you know, destroying everything he touched, um, that's where he was born. That vagabond in Vienna wasn't the same guy. That kid growing up wasn't the same guy. As a matter of fact, from everything you read, it wasn't, he wasn't even a particularly anti-Semitic person. The Adolf Hitler that took over Germany was born in 1918. And he was a powerful figure from the minute he was born. It's, you know, this is like something out of The Exorcist. This person was taken over, and from 1918 to 1945 was the person we know as Adolf Hitler. And as far as you can tell, if you wanted to read his book, and this is another amazing thing about the man, is that, you know, Adolf Hitler was probably a medieval figure. He probably belonged in medieval times or ancient times. I'm not sure anyone would have looked twice at the guy if he had been a Mongol Khan, for example. The Mongols were fond of wiping out whole peoples, leaving, literally, mountains of skulls behind. Adolf Hitler probably would have made a decent Mongol Khan. Or go back to biblical times. Look at your Assyrian kings. I mean, he'd have been an average Joe among the line of Assyrian kings. Matter of fact... I think they actually enjoyed the killing more than Adolf Hitler probably did. Adolf Hitler had these theories about wiping out people. The Assyrians had the theories and they enjoyed it too. He probably would have fit in rather well. But what makes him different from all those guys is two things. One, he got a hold of a major industrialized country in the 20th century. Terrible when one of those Mongol Khans or ancient Assyrian kings gets a hold of a modern country, isn't it? And what also made him different is we have a book by this guy detailing his whole way of thinking. How interesting would it have been if we had Genghis Khan's worldview, in his own words, to look over today? Or Sargon the Great's, for that matter, if you want to go back to the biblical times. Well, we have this from Adolf Hitler. How often do you get a book by one of these evil beings? And what's amazing about the book, it's not an amazing book. It's actually quite a slog He's no John Grisham, Adolf Hitler. At the same time, though, when you read it with the sort of hindsight we have now, you can't help but think, why didn't more people take this seriously? I mean, here's a guy who laid the whole thing out. He's telling you what he's going to do. Stop him, you know, before he kills again, kind of thing. But nobody took this guy seriously. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, up until the time this guy took power, people weren't taking him seriously. Which was sort of, I mean, if you want to talk about the many cautionary tales in this story, maybe number one is not taking a person like this seriously enough early on. Now, we told you that this guy wasn't even this guy until the end of the First World War. Let me tell you what Mein Kampf seems to show. If you read his book with a sort of a, you know, psychiatrist eye about you, and remember that the book obviously was meant to be, uh, you know, an aggrandizement of Adolf Hitler, You don't write autobiographies to show all your flaws, so take it with a grain of salt. Nevertheless, if you look at it, it's pretty clear that there were two major events, and Hitler himself talks about them, that transformed him from who he was throughout his whole life into something different. And maybe this was like a two-stage demonic possession, if you want to go there. And the first stage of it happened in Vienna while he was a vagabond. And the second stage happened at the end of the First World War. The first stage was um, Hitler's exposure to Austro-Hungarian multiculturalism. And what I mean by that is Hitler looked around Vienna after he left his parents' home while he was a young man, eventually living homeless and hungry on the streets. And he noticed how... Austria-Hungary was this polygot mixture of races and peoples and cultures and religions. It had Czechs and Slavs, Hungarians, Turks, Bulgars. It had Christians, Muslims, Orthodox, Catholic. Matter of fact, any group you could think of. It was uh, basically ruled over both at the nobility level and at the higher classes of society by a small German minority on top of a large pyramid of, you know, other people's. And it was very cosmopolitan. And Hitler saw this as divisive. He saw the problems of Austria-Hungary as being completely tied to the fact that it had all these races and people sniping and biting each other and fighting for their piece of the pie and not working for the common good. And he had more distaste for one of these people than any others. He didn't like any of them. But his least favorite were the Jews. Jews. And one of the things you get from reading Mein Kampf is he seems to hate the Jews the most for a couple of reasons. One, because they have no state of their own. Hitler saw them, by the way, as incapable of having a state, he said. I wonder what he would have thought by the modern state of Israel. But at least he gave credit to the people like the Bulgars, because there was a Bulgaria. And, uh, you know, even the gypsies, who he didn't like, had a Romania in his mind. But the Jews had no country of their own, so they latched on to other people's countries in his mind. And then they tried to control the people, and they got control of finances. And he had all these stereotypes about the cunning Jew and the money-hungry Jew and the parasitic Jew. You read his writings. And Hitler saw Judaism all over the place, as a lot of anti-Semites do. Certainly he saw the capitalistic democratic West with its parliamentary governments as being completely controlled by you know, the big centers of finances and the bankers. And to Hitler, that meant Jews. But the rising power of this idea called communism that had been gaining steam all through the late 1800s, Hitler saw that as Jewish too. In his mind, Karl Marx, who wrote some of the early works, was Jewish. A lot of the big thinkers in the communist movement and the leaders were Jewish. And in Hitler's mind, this was another Jewish movement. But he hadn't quite gotten as angry yet at Bolshevism as he would. Because that's the second step that Hitler takes in his demonic possession. Stage two, I guess you could say. Because as we said, when Hitler got to the First World War, it was actually an improvement of his life compared to what Vienna was like for him. And he got in the German army and in Mein Kampf, he actually writes about the First World War days with fondness. How bad does your life have to be where the First World War is an improvement of your conditions. And Hitler wasn't a guy who was outside of the action either. He wasn't some rear echelon guy. He was wounded twice. He apparently was a decent soldier. I don't think he stood out as particularly great, but he did his duty and, uh, as I said, was wounded twice. As a matter of fact, when Hitler got the news that the fighting was going to stop, November eleventh, 1918 is when the armistice took effect, he was actually in a field hospital recovering from being gassed. And he'd been blinded. And he writes in Mein Kampf, and there are other books which detail this as well. You can always go, by the way, to the website, and we put the show notes up, and if we talk about a book, we'll put it up there. We'll also put up some of the other ones we used for uh, research. But everybody seems to agree that when Hitler got the news that the war ended, it was some sort of a transformative experience. And let's explain that a little bit. Because... Unlike the Second World War, which there were a couple of years where the Germans were being ground down and there was lots of time to get used to the idea of defeat, and not just that. When the war ended, there were you know, allied troops all over Germany. There was no real way to kid yourself about who won the war. The First World War didn't end like that. The First World War had been a very near-run thing, to quote the Duke of Wellington about Waterloo. And the Germans not only could have won it, But had come close recently. There was something called the Kaiserschlacht. It was one of the last offensives of the war by Germany in 1918. What had happened was the Soviet Union had been proclaimed in the east. Russia had fallen. Remember, they went into the First World War led by czars and a royal family. The royal family did not survive the war. The war so traumatized Russia that the czars fell. The Bolsheviks ended up taking over. And by the end of the First World War were firmly ensconced in power in what was now called the Soviet Union. And it's funny because the Germans actually had a role in helping get the Soviet Union created. Anything they could do to destabilize their eastern enemy, they sent Vladimir Lenin, one of the main Bolsheviks, uh, back from exile on a train paid for with, you know, German money, uh, back to Russia because the Germans figured it would help mess up Russia's war effort, and it did. And when Russia dropped out of the war, signed a peace treaty with the Germans, the Germans took all those troops they'd had on the eastern front facing Russia and threw them at the very tired western front where the Americans had still not arrived in any numbers that could make a real difference. And the Germans were throwing all of their last hopes into this giant series of battles that's been called the Kaiserschlacht. And so when the armistice happened on November 11th, 1918, the Germans had sort of collapsed recently, I guess you could say. The army fell apart rapidly at the end. And because of that, and because the German army was still occupying trenches all in France, you know, the Allies weren't marching through Berlin with any victory parades. The Germans were still conquerors in their own minds. This messed up the whole thing because it allowed a whole myth to develop that the war had never really been lost by the soldiers. And when Hitler heard the news in that hospital bed, blinded by gas, he said he put his hands into his face and just put his head into his pillow and screamed. He was astonished. And and this must have been the reaction of a lot of the German troops. Because they really hadn't had their nose mashed in it. Yes, they probably weren't winning, but how did it collapse so quickly? More on that later. But this second stage of Hitler's demonic possession must have taken hold because he writes in Mein Kampf, and again, historians seem to agree, uh, but Hitler dramatically proclaims that at that moment, he said, I'm going into politics. You know, something akin to this shall not stand. It's probably not quite that dramatic and instantaneous, but it could have been. In any case, by this time, he's taken one stage of demonic possession in Vienna where he decides he doesn't like all these races and people and that a single race like they had in Germany, he was an admirer of Germany, looked over the border, that was preferable and you ended up with a stronger country than that mixed race thing in Austria. And the second stage of the demonic possession when all of a sudden, Germany goes away. You know, this country he'd admired from afar, he gets into the army as a German, he's thinking about becoming a German citizen, now it's going away. And by that I mean... When the war ended so quickly, the noble families of Germany and the Kaiser, the king, fled overnight, basically. And all of a sudden, there was a vacuum in leadership, and just sort of out of a second thought, a social democracy was proclaimed. And the head of the Germans must have just been, just been reeling. I mean, here you thought that you were still going to be in a war. Now the war is over. Now you've lost... Now the royal family's gone. Now there's a social democracy. And this all happened in the blink of an eye. Not just that. But when the armistice happened, the Germans, a lot of them anyway, believed that they were going to get a halfway decent deal in the peace treaty. There was a firm hope, I guess you could say, that the deal was going to be based on President Woodrow Wilson of the United States is 14 points. That's a plan that Wilson had floated during the war as a possible basis for a peace agreement that would be fair. And of course, Wilson wanted a fair one because he was hoping you know two sides that weren't exhausted yet would say, oh, that's pretty good. We'll take it. By the time the war ended, though, the Allies had the upper hand. The Americans were coming. They were already starting to make their presence felt, and there were more on the way. The Germans had just basically shot their bolt with this Kaiserschlacht thing, and you could see the writing on the wall. So the Germans were intelligent. After some big allied offensives, they said, look, we have to sue for peace. The army won't hold. And in addition, and this is important, there were starting to be signs of unrest in Germany. There's a couple of famous examples, one involving uh, some naval units that Rebelled, hoisted up the communist flag and went Bolshevik for a little while. But that was only indicative of, of sort of the Bolshevik influence on the streets. It's funny because here the Germans had used as a tactic to undermine their eastern enemy, the Tsar, sending the communists over there to undermine his government. But then the communists take over and they're going to spread this Bolshevism worldwide. And one of their you know ideas of spreading it is to go into Germany and undermine the war effort, right? Tell people this is a war for rich people, that only the workers are being hurt. And some of the workers, including some of the soldiers, were listening. Well, the generals who were in charge of Germany said it's time for peace. The Kaiser fled. A social democracy was proclaimed. And by the time the peace treaty was hashed out, it was almost a year later, And by this time, Germany was in chaos. Its forces were basically demobilized, and the Allies were still strong, stronger than ever. They still had a blockade on Germany, a naval blockade. The Germans were in no position to barter anymore, and the Allies knew this. And the Germans were saddled with a peace treaty that was so harsh that many people at the time said it was a recipe for another world war. This was not something that people even needed hindsight to see. The treaty was so hard on the Germans that observers at the time said, you've just signed your contract for another one. And it must be said that the French bear the lion's share of responsibility for this. The French wanted a hard treaty. They didn't want Wilson's 14 points and a magnanimous victory. They had paid a terrible price in this war. A terrible, terrible price. Millions of dead. The destruction of some of the best parts of France. And if you don't believe it, some of it is still off limits today, ladies and gentlemen. Still so covered with shells, thousands of them in the soil, coming up every year, that it is still something that kills Frenchmen. And the French wanted Germany put in a place where they could never do this to France again. And it wasn't an idle thought even that, because the Germans had come in 1871 and 1870 in the Franco-Prussian War and completely taken over France and defeated them. The way the French saw this, this was going to be an every 30 or 40 year thing if something wasn't done. And so something was done. But this is one of the cautionary tales, maybe, of the whole, you know, story here is how something can do exactly the opposite of what it's designed to do. Because the Treaty of Versailles, as the main one came to be called, did a couple of things. And everything that it did ended up playing into the hands of an Adolf Hitler, who of course ended up making everybody pay an even more terrible price. So one must question whether history might not have been much better served by a much easier treaty than the Versailles Treaty. But here's what it did in the main. The main thing the treaty did was first of all decide to make sure Germany was never going to be any sort of a power again. And it did this with a blunt force of a hammer and said, you're not going to have any more than a 100,000 man army. Now, that may sound like a lot of people, but in the First World War, the Germans had millions and millions and millions of soldiers. To say that you were cutting it down to 100,000 was worse than a skeleton staff and ended up being a terrible thorn in the side of all those who wanted to see Germany stay out of another war. It should be noted, by the way, Hitler and his group were able to, at times, have millions of private soldiers under arms. They were called the uh, brown shirts or the stormtroopers uh, the proper name was the SA which in German was uh, short for Storm and Ableitung. Um, and at times the Sturm numbered like 2 million guys well normally it would be the German army that would counterbalance that but the German army was abnormally limited to 100,000 people that gave Hitler a heck of a lot of clout He wouldn't normally have. He couldn't be ignored by the government because he had many, many, many more soldiers than the government. I don't think the French were expecting this when they thought they were limiting Germany's ability to ever invade France again by keeping their army so small. In addition to that, the treaty imposed crushing reparations on the Germans reparations that the Germans couldn't pay. And the French occupied the Rhineland, which was Germany's most industrialized, important industrial region. And that inhibited their ability to you know, recover from the First World War as well. And also embittered them even more toward the French because there they were sitting in the Rhineland taking German money. As a matter of fact, the French were more insulated than a lot of other countries from the horrors and the terrible parts of the Great Depression – Because they were subsidized by all this German reparations money, even though reparations were stopped at a certain point. The point is that this Treaty of Versailles was the key to all of Hitler's successes coming to power. And the bitterness that it engendered in the German people was the well that Hitler tapped for support, and he knew how to use it. See, that's the first thing you have to ask about all these national socialist ideas, is, did Hitler believe all this stuff, and what stuff are we talking about? I said we were going to talk about some of their ideas. Well, what were they? Well, obviously Hitler had his whole multicultural thing going, where he had a problem with races and peoples, and he specifically had a problem with the Jews. But Hitler ended up, Running across the Nazis in a strange way, and hey yeah, and he had a little bit of a different philosophy than the other Nazis, because in another one of those strange twists of history, when the war ended, as I said, Hitler was in a field hospital, blinded, he certainly must have worried uh, about what was going to happen to himself. He'd been a vagabond, homeless, starving before the war, now the war's over. Was he just going to go back to being a loser? Well, he'd proclaimed in Mein Kampf that he'd decided to go into politics, but he didn't have any clear ideas right away. So he did a little work for some of his former military officers who were sort of trying to keep tabs on all these radical groups that were springing up in Germany because of the chaos and the conditions created there. The Germans had a government now, it was a social democracy called the Weimar Republic, but the vast majority of Germans loathed it. And they loathed it for a number of reasons, but the main one is sort of not their fault not the social democracy backers fault it was their bad luck you see it was the generals mainly a guy named ludendorff with his sidekick hindenburg who were sort of the military governors of germany by the end of the war the kaiser was supposed to be running things but you know merit sort of takes over when the war is desperate and these two guys were running things they were the ones who said germany has to surrender but by the time the actual treaty was signed they weren't the ones in power anymore and History sort of seems to think that Ludendorff and Hindenburg knew they wouldn't be. And it was the poor Social Democrats who ended up having to be the representatives of Germany that signed this hated treaty. And this treaty that left everybody so bitter. Hitler actually railed against people he called the November criminals. And the November criminals represented a couple of different people in the minds of Hitler and the Germans. The first group it represented were... These communists who would stab the German army in the back. More on that in a second. The second group of people that the November criminals represented were the people that signed the hated Versailles Treaty and represented the Weimar Republic. In other words, even though the people who ran the government might change in Hitler's mind and in the minds of a lot of people were susceptible to his message, the November criminals were anybody connected to the Weimar government, anybody connected to the signing of the hated treaty, and anybody connected to the surrender. Now, this is where Hitler's ideas on communism and Bolshevism, we told you earlier, that he'd already connected that to Judaism in a strange way. But when the war ended and the German army ended up having to retreat from positions in foreign lands. In other words, not having been decisively defeated. A, an idea grew up about the German army being stabbed in the back. Matter of fact, there was a famous um, welcome home speech by one of the generals who uh, announced to the soldiers, you know, welcome back those undefeated on the battlefield. And this myth grew up that the German army had never been defeated, but it was the weakness and defeatism of the German people back at home that undercut the war effort. And the people behind the defeatism in the minds of Hitler and a lot of other veterans were these Bolsheviks. After all, there was Bolshevism breaking out all over the country, you know, behind the soldier's rear, so to speak. Hitler writes in Mein Kampf about a lot of the replacement troops that were brought from the homeland to the front to replace those who had been killed and wounded in action came a lot less patriotic and gung-ho, you know, than Hitler and his men were. That they were already sort of infected with the defeatist virus. And so Hitler blamed Bolshevism for undercutting the war effort and losing the war, since, of course, they were never really defeated on the battlefield. And in Hitler's mind, that means everybody and comrade that he had and that he'd seen wounded and killed in action had died for nothing. And in Hitler's mind, remember, the Bolsheviks and the communists were the Jews. So now in Hitler's mind, the Bolsheviks were the Jews, the West and their parliamentary democracies were the Jews. Hitler often wrote, ...as if he were a Christian... ...but he also felt like the church... ...was totally corrupted by Jewish ideas. Here's a man... ...who was going... ...to basically run... ...on a political platform... ...of restoring Germany... ...to its proper position... ...and he saw Jews... ...as the enemy to that... ...in every direction. In addition... ...Hitler had a prescription... ...for the rebirth of the German people... ...that is fascinating. It's like we said... Sometimes you get wrapped up in how fascinating a historical story this is and then forget about, you know, where it's all leading. Let's not forget where it's all leading. This is Hitler's prescription for the apocalypse. And it was the prescription for the Jewish apocalypse at first. Turned out to be the prescription for a whole lot of other people's apocalypses too. The Germans as well. I think a lot of people forget two things about the Germans. And this is not an apologist uh, speaking for them. But I think we have to understand, one, that a majority of Germans probably didn't approve of Hitler at any time. And think about how bad you would feel for people who never wanted this guy, but who get their cities firebombed as a result of his policies anyway, who get saddled with the guilt as a result of his policies anyway. Those people are to be pitied, I think, as well. And at the same time, the Germans got to be the latest example in human history of how hate is a boomerang. And how embracing the policies and the ideologies of hate end up you know destroying your nation and your people and create suffering in your camp. So in some ways I think the Germans paid a terrible price for their embracing this guy. But this guy had their number. Once again, getting back to the idea about what made Adolf Hitler different than a Joseph Stalin was that Hitler was able to touch something about the Germans that he himself understood because I think truthfully he himself felt the same way and and like a great salesman find what motivated and moved the German people and the German people were ashamed they had in a very short time fallen from exalted positions and the Germans were a proud people to impotency to a nation that was falling apart, to riots in the streets. They had just sacrificed a whole generation of Germans to the war machine of the First World War, and they didn't even get to win. They were mad. And along comes this, as we said, demon-possessed, original nobody who all of a sudden has found the power to speak, and he knows what moves them. And by the way, that's another example where... Hitler is in a position where you just go, what if he'd never gone to that first Nazi meeting? As we had started to say earlier, when the war ended, Hitler was doing a little research, uh, research on the part of the military who was trying to look at all these little groups that had sprung up, you know, in the wake of the social democracy being proclaimed. One of these little radical groups was called the National Socialist German Workers' Party. The NSDAP is the uh, letters in the German. And Hitler basically was in the back of a dusty old beer hall monitoring a very small group of people. I think it was like 8, 10, 12 people. He was kind of taking notes for his superiors back at the military headquarters. And at the end of the meeting, one of these NSDAP guys uh, comes up to Hitler and shakes his hands warmly, Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, and presses a pamphlet with the party's um, political platform on it, written on it. And Hitler writes in Mein Kampf that he went back to his uh, bed, his bunk, and read the platform and went back for another meeting and, long story short, decided to join the group. What a fateful moment that was. Or many, many moments. I mean, at any time during the whole thing, what if the guy had never gone up to Hitler, shook his hand, and pressed the platform into it? What if Hitler's military superiors had sent him to another meeting instead? What if Hitler had gone to another meeting and not liked that meeting? I mean, how many amazing things have to happen for things to turn out the way it did. While some of my friends who subscribe to the god of history theory might say, Dan, Hitler was where he was supposed to be at the right time and there's nothing he could have done to change it. At the same time, boy, you certainly think something might have happened. I mean, my goodness, if you just look at all the assassination attempts uh, on Hitler, there were many that were not as publicized as some others. It's amazing he even lived. And what if he died? This cult of personality that surrounded Adolf Hitler. Remember, he's like a movie star compared to Joseph Stalin. Don't believe me, by the way? You ought to look at some of the newsreels or even some of the still photos that you can see where Hitler is speaking or interacting with the public, especially interacting, and take a look at the looks on the faces of the people. They look manic. They look like they're looking at Elvis or something. Like to touch him would be to make your life complete. Like if you could just get his sweaty scarf off of him, you would die happy. It's a manic look. Joseph Stalin never elicited manic looks. Hitler had something going for him. As I said, part of it was his ability to delve into the German soul and know what moved Germans. I remember I took a course my first year in college, and it was on political science, and it was taught by a German gentleman who I found out later had been a soldier in the war, And he was talking about the Nazis and showing us some films. And I remember that there was a lot of snickering in the class. And it was a very rah-rah period uh, in our history here in America. And some of the students were laughing at the naivete of the Germans and saying, you know, no one in our country would ever fall for some funny little guy with a mustache who talks so funny and gets red in the face. And our professor, who had obviously lived through this before, had an interesting comeback. He said, you're right. He said you're never going to have German fascism in this country. Fascism ties itself to the national roots of the nation. It weaves itself through the myths of who a nation thinks they are and weds itself to them. Fascism worked in Germany because it was German fascism, he said. If it ever happened in America, it would be American fascism. It would be wrapped up in our national heritage, and in our national beliefs, and John Wayne would be the demagogue president, not Adolf Hitler. And when you look at National Socialism and what Hitler was promising, this again is part of what makes them fascinating. It's one of the weirdest philosophies you've ever heard. And again, that's another 20th century aspect of Hitler that you just don't imagine Genghis Khan had. He may have had an ideology, and he may have had a worldview... It just seems unlikely. Hitler had this whole ideology. He wrote it down in Mein Kampf. He endeavored to try to make this weird worldview consistent and make it work. And it revolved around some weird, weird theories. First of all, we told you he was a racial fanatic. He had all kinds of weird terms to break races and peoples down. He had one called blood worth and another one called race worth. And basically it boiled down to this. Hitler believed that there were greater and lesser people just as there probably are, you know, person A is more formidable than person B, at least in some ways. And then Hitler said, but also races are that way. You know, race A is more formidable than race B. And he ranked them. And the Germans and the Anglo-Saxons were at the top of the list. And the Slavs were way down low. And of course, the Jews in Hitler's mind were way at the bottom, gypsies way at the bottom. And then Hitler had these convoluted theories about how that the, the difference in individual people based on race also works at the national level. You know, countries made up of more powerful races are inherently stronger than countries made up of weaker races. And this philosophy got him into all kinds of trouble later on. It's what allowed him to underestimate the Soviet Union. Thought it was just a bunch of Slavs led by a bunch of Jews that you could topple its rotting edifice over easily. You know, people today look back on Hitler's decision to invade the Soviet Union as a monumental error. What was he thinking? That's because we know how strong the Soviet Union turned out to be. But the Nazi ideology, their philosophy taught them that it wasn't gonna be tough at all. First of all, let's understand something. The Germans had very easy victories over the Tsarists' armies in the First World War. The Tsar's troops did not put up much of a fight. And in the Nazi ideology, The Tsars were infinitely superior leaders of a Russian state... ...than, you know, in their minds, the Jewish Bolsheviks. So if Russia seemed easy in the First World War... ...wait till you saw what the Germans were going to do to them in the Second... ...must have been Hitler's thinking. That's one of the places that his whole racial idea was proven wrong. Because these Untermenschen, these Slavs... ...these people who Hitler killed at least 20 million of... ...let's remember how many of them paid the price for his racial theories... uh, ...stomped him good. And at the end of his life... Hitler was actually saying, well, things to the effect of, and remember he was practically a crazy man by the end of his life, things to the effect of, though, that the German people were getting what they deserved, that the stronger race won. And it shows you a little window into the world of Hitler's social Darwinism. The Nazis were this fascinating makeup of, like, 20th century cutting-edge scientific ideas, some of which weren't scientific at all, but they passed for scientific, you know, the Nazi ideas on things like eugenics. But also their connection to Germany's romantic past. I remember taking a class about, you know, from a famous teacher. It was I was very excited. Walked in, and we were going to learn all about the Nazis. I sat in the front row, thought I was going to hear all this Nazi stuff, and the teacher sat down and started talking about the romantic movement in the late 1800s. Talked about painters, and opera composers, and writers, and I was horrified. I did not understand the connection between learning about all this art and the most grotesque, horrific, brutal movement of the 20th century, which was already a brutal century. Turns out, though, that understanding that romantic idea, the noble savage and all that, that takes you back to what Hitler thought. He was a product of that way of looking at things. As a matter of fact, one of the ideas Hitler used to preach was the virtue of emotionalism over rationalism. Sort of a follow-your-heart mentality and ignore the facts. Facts can be misleading, he used to say, or some variation of that. And the ideas that got this whole romantic idea of, you know, the, the pagan pre-Christian German society, because to Hitler, who was a Christian, he saw the whole religion as being infused since its founding with Jewish ideas and Jewish thoughts, and it was corrupted by Jewishness as well. And Hitler wanted to get back to a pagan Level of Germanness and it was this romantic movement that gave him the idea And per- I mean Hitler had a line you have to understand Wagner to understand National Socialism Wagner of course is a composer what the heck would that mean? well what it means is that the Nazis had firm roots in the Neo-Romantic movement of the late 1800s and the way that they were going to take you back to that romanticized version of Arianism and pre corrupted Germanness was through this twentieth century science and these experiments and these well let's be honest brutal ideas at who gets to live and who gets to die. And what they were kind of trying to do was to use the twentieth century science to somehow get them back to the romantic German past. You know, use the eugenics to turn the modern day multiculturally race weak Germans into supermen. And if you think about it, it only takes a couple of generations to, you know, change people. Hitler started pairing up real tall, blonde, blue-eyed men with real tall, blonde, blue-eyed women right after he took power. Figured in a couple of generations he's going to have a whole new group of people raised by selective breeding, sort of like you'd raise dogs. And Hitler had this social Darwinian idea that survival of the fittest was important and that you couldn't let these Untermenschen soil the race of the Germans, the pure Aryans in Hitler's mind. You might note, by the way, he doesn't look much like a pure Aryan himself. He's not even German, but we already said that. In any case, the Jews shouldn't be allowed to reproduce. The physically disabled shouldn't be allowed to reproduce. The non aryan shouldn't be allowed to reproduce. And in a couple generations, Hitler thought he was going to turn the race around. Which is something that's interesting. I mean, if you're Adolf Hitler and your ideas are twisted from the very center, you know, your whole assumption is wrong, but then you try to base a whole logical argument off of that assumption if you decided that the german people wanted and needed a rebirth right and that is what a lot of german people did want that's what made them susceptible to his message he was able to touch that in the german soul and if you determine though that the problem that's inhibiting your country from getting this rebirth is genetic in nature that you have a problem with the gene pool what do you do to fix that Well, that's what Hitler thought the problem was. And so in his mind, the solution was gene pool related. And one way you fixed it was by only having the best and the brightest mate together. The other way you fixed it was by not letting the non-best and brightest mate. And then the third way you fixed it was by going out and exterminating all these other peoples. And this is another tragic flaw in the whole Nazi ideology. Because in a funny way, the same way the Versailles Treaty was a tragic flaw in the end of the First World War, and it led to the Second. The anti-Semitism and Hitler's race-based philosophies is the tragic flaw in the Third Reich. Many people make the mistake of thinking that World War II Germany was stronger than World War I Germany. I don't think that's true at all, and I think a lot of historians would probably agree with me. What's called Wilhelmine Germany, the First World War Germany, was a much more unified society. What Hitler did by going after the Jews was divide his own country. The Jews fought for Germany in the First World War. They were patriotic Germans just like everyone else. You had a much stronger country. Don't believe me? Think about all of the talent. Business talent, intellectual talent. How about Albert Einstein as just one person who left Germany because of the Nazis, who didn't just not help the Germans, but who actively helped their enemies? By the way, Einstein's quoted as calling Nazism a psychic illness of the masses. Which, once again, if you go and look at the films of the Hitler rallies, that's what it looks like. Like he's totally captivated these people. At the end of the Second World War, when the early, early histories were being written, there was a real temptation to link Hitler sort of to a cult leader. You know, someone like a Jim Jones or a David Koresh. And I think it's the messianic way that Hitler was received by the audiences. You know, that look on their faces that made them think so. But, and by the way, that's something that makes me think that Adolf Hitler really believed his shtick, and that it wasn't just some means to an end, that he wasn't a thug using this whole ideology of his as an excuse for power. Because if that were the case, don't you think that near the end of the war, when every effort was needed to defend Germany and protect your own hide, you wouldn't have tried to keep the trains rolling? The Holocaust would have just been ditched as something that was not useful anymore now, but I think he believed his weird racial theories about the rebirth of Germany being tied to the gene pool. And again, that's what makes him fascinating, but also like Charles Manson on a national level. And maybe it's you know, we human beings have a tendency to be fascinated by the grotesque sometimes, don't we? How many, what, what percentage of us would rubberneck at a traffic accident to get a better view? What percentage of us likes all those programs about serial killers or crime investigation, forensic science, all that stuff? Well, something tells me the people who are fascinated by the train wreck can't help but look at the one that happened in Germany in the middle 1930s. Just go to your bookstore and look at all the swastikas on the book jackets. There's still an immense fascination. Part of it is we can't believe it happened. The other part of it is we can't believe human beings are capable of that kind of grotesqueness and that kind of cold, methodical wiping out of other human beings. And another part of it is that Hitler is so obviously a man from another time, so out of place. He's a Tamerlane. He's an Attila the Hun. He's a Sargon the Great. And he's so evil that Well, there's that fascination like a Silence of the Lambs thing with Hannibal Lecter. You're looking into the eyes of one of the most evil people in history and sometimes there's a fascination there. But let's remember that that's the fascination that led Germany over the cliff. Led them to Armageddon. This man captured enough of the German soul and psyche by finding inside those people what made them tick and it's probably because it was the same thing that made him tick. He touched that nerve that was so humiliated by the loss in the First World War and the Versailles Treaty and he said support me and we will fix it. And fixing it won't be easy but the people who got us here will pay. The November criminals will pay. The Jews will pay. The communists will pay. Those who held us down will pay. The French will pay. And people were ready to hear that. What will this period look like a thousand years from now? Will they look at the 12-year Third Reich and say that it was a period of complete insanity on the part of the German people? You know, a total anomaly? Or will they play the cause and effect game and say that had that Versailles Treaty not kept the knife in Germany, maybe the Germans would never have been susceptible to the message of this hater who took control of their country and showed them what The wages of hate on a national scale preached daily provide, and that is, eternal shame, when the whole reason he received any support from that country at all was because they were ashamed. If you think the show you just heard is worth a dollar, Dan and Ben would love to have it. It's about the cost of a soft drink, and yet it's so much more stimulating. A buck a show, it's all we ask. Go to DanCarlin.com for information on how to donate to the show. Don't forget to vote for Hardcore History on PodcastAlley.com.